You know me? I know what you are. Good. Then you know if you look for trouble while you're here, you'll find more than you can handle. To the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 13 and 14, which begin with the Atoll Gates closing behind the Mariner, and they end with the Mariner looking to get his dirt appraised. I feel like these two minutes is the first scene of the movie that is actually part of the plot of the movie. Yeah. I feel like we're just getting going. All of the stuff that happened before entering the Atoll, that's just us getting introduced to the world. Yeah. Now we're getting introduced to plot stuff. I'm not upset that we had the establishing scene that we did. No, I thought it was good. I thought it did a really good job of introducing us to characters. We've already met the villain of the story. We've already gotten a sense of what life is like, that it's cruel and punishing and you have to be cruel sometimes, a lot of times, to survive it. So yeah. those themes are going to run throughout the rest of the movie. I'm trying to think of other opening scenes in the Mad Max movie specifically. And obviously you've got the Knight Rider chase. That is a big opening scene in the first yes. one. And then in Road Warrior, you've got those raiders that are chasing Max down. One in the car, a couple on the bikes, one in the buggy. Mm-hmm. And then I think for Thunderdome, it's specifically the camel stuff leading up to the gates of Bartertown. And then Fury Road, of course, is Max running crazy through the Citadel. Hmm. I definitely prefer the one here in Waterworld to the one at the beginning of Thunderdome. I agree. Waterworld's opening sequence does more to prepare us for the plot than Thunderdome's opening sequence. Although I'd have to say my favorite out of the five, my favorite opening sequence is the classic Mad Max. Mm -hmm. The Knight Rider chase was glorious. Second favorite is Fury Road opening scenes. With how frantic it was? Yes, it was so well shot and it was such a ride. Yeah. What I like in all of these openings that we've seen is the way that they are action scenes to get us engaged in the movie, but they're also good ways to set up stuff later in the plot. Like if the drifter had not told the Mariner about this atoll, this specific atoll, then he never would have run into Helen and Enola and we wouldn't have had the rest of this movie. Same way that if Max hadn't been the one to take out the Knight Rider, then Toecutter wouldn't have had that extra motivation to take out Max. So we're building a story in a way that we don't necessarily realize right away that we're building a story. Exactly. And that's my favorite way for things to get started. Teach me about the world, but I don't want to know that all the elements of the world you're using to teach me are part of the plot down the road. Mm -hmm. Like, let me figure things out. <laughs> if you don't learn for yourself, you'll never truly learn. Like, you can tell me stuff, but unless I go through the process myself, like, that's how I really learn. So we're going into the atoll here at the top of these minutes, and one of the first things that the mariner does is he sticks his finger in his mouth and he starts scrubbing away at his teeth. 
as he glances around at the atoll. And it makes me think that dental hygiene in this post-apocalypse would suffer from a lot of the drawbacks from post-apocalypses that we've seen so far. And you never really seem to find people with very bad teeth. <laughs> there are elements of a post-apocalyptic world we don't want to see mm -hmm. in a movie. That How dirty it's going to be. That being said, though, one of the ways that you get rid of a canker sore inside your mouth is you gargle and swish around salt water. And so salt water itself has those cleansing properties. So you could think, okay, if there are no refined sugars that people are eating. I was thinking about that. And yeah. you're constantly swishing salt water around in your mouth. That would probably give you a leg up on someone who is eating refined sugars and not brushing their teeth otherwise. Definitely. Us seeing the mariner being aware of his teeth, realizing, okay, I'm going to go talk to people. I'm going to check my teeth and at least make sure they're not fuzzy. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's getting them clean. I think he's getting them not fuzzy. So he's aware of his teeth. This tells me that he takes care of them in some sense. Yeah. He does something to take care of his teeth because now in this moment, he is aware that he would like them to be cleaner. Does him scratching at his teeth seem uncharacteristically vain? Because he is looking at other people while he does it. You know, yeah, maybe it does seem uncharacteristically vain. He presents himself as a loner, as someone who does not want to be around other people. And you would think that bad breath is one of those ways to keep people at arm's length. And yet, he is paying special attention to his oral hygiene because he is here to interact with other people. So maybe he puts out this forward-facing image of the gruff loner, but at the same time, maybe he doesn't necessarily want to always be a loner, but he keeps up that facade anyway. In the novelization, I think you spoke last week, or maybe it was the week before, about the Mariner's arrival, and he had, like, gussied himself up. Oh yeah, he was paying special attention to what he was wearing. Yes. So... This is where the movie and the book connect about his appearance. Uh -huh. He didn't change his clothes or anything, but he did check his teeth. He is putting forth some effort to be more appealing in some way. I think that's definitely one way that we could read it. I don't want to sit here and say that's the definitive reading, but as we watch it, it's standing out. Especially because the Mariner turns and we see there's a boat along the side with a woman on it and she notices the mariner, leans down, knocks on the side of the boat, and then a face appears in the porthole. Like, everyone's abuzz with this new visitor. Yeah, and some of the people already know he has dirt. So, do you think that boat is a brothel boat? <laughs> I'm not going to rule it out that such a thing as a brothel boat exists in the post-apocalypse. That makes sense. And I will admit that the woman in question, she does have some fair features. It's not like she's one of the caked with grime people that we see hanging around later on. And she is completely covered up, which isn't your stereotypical presentation of a prostitute. But in this world, I think it might be because once she takes all her clothes off, her skin has been protected from the sun and is nicer. I mean, yeah, less she's sun worn. She's covered up in the fact that she's got an umbrella hat and something draped over her shoulders, 
But the beginning of that shot when she first shows up, maybe it's just a thing where every woman in Waterworld has a low cut top, but her top is pretty low cut. It is pretty low cut. And she is showing off leg. I don't necessarily want to cast this woman as a sex worker just because she is a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, certainly not. I think there is a distinct possibility that that element of society is present there. I see no reason for it not to be. Mm -hmm. Especially because it's a tactic that Helen will employ later on in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) I think the important thing with that shot is everybody is a buzz because you can bet that the people that were up on that tower that saw the dirt instantly started telling everybody about dirt. Oh, yeah. Plus, he's an interesting person. He's a loner. On a giant boat. On a gigantic boat. Actually, they don't really know he's a loner. He could have a family down in the boat that's just hiding because it's safer that way. Yeah, they don't know. But yeah, the boat itself would be interesting. And yeah, they know he has dirt. Mm Mm-hmm. So as the Mariner is sailing through the atoll, we cut off to the side and we get to see that the Enforcer is picking his way along the side of the atoll. He seems to be walking pretty much at the same speed as the Trimoran. He's keeping a close eye on it. And even though we heard him speak for the first time last week, I don't want to do more than one character introduction per week, so I'm going to space it out as we go. That sounds great. So let's meet the Enforcer. He is played by R.D. Call. He is best known, according to IMDb, for his roles in Last Man Standing in 96. This movie in 95, he was a chaplain in Born on the Fourth of July in 1989. And he played a character named Bull in 2007's Into the Wild. Roy Dana Call was born February 16, 1950 in Ogden, Utah. He grew up in Layton, the eldest of four children graduated from Davis High School in 1968 and attended State University of Utah and Weber State University, where he studied theater. His acting career spans a total of 59 projects between 1979 and 2017, with 27 of those being on television. Call also reprised his role as the enforcer for Interplay's Waterworld The Quest for Dryland video game. They had full motion video sequences, and he was one of the recurring characters. Oh, okay, okay. So Call was born into a family that were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He left the church in his early teens and married Nita Nickerson at the St. Rose of Lima Catholic Church in Layton, Utah on April 14, 1972. They had no children and divorced in December of 1981, but remained lifelong friends. Call would play the role of Governor Lilburn Boggs of Missouri in the 2005 sequel The Work and the Glory 2 American Zion, and would return the next year in The Work and the Glory 3, A House Divided, in 2006. Though he battled with alcoholism through most of his acting career, he was 26 years sober at the time of his death. He died on February 27, 2020, from complications of back surgery at the age of 70. Oh. Yeah, it was very recent. Yeah, 26 years. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Very commendable. As the trimaran moves More into the center of the atoll, the gates close behind the mariner, and I get the sense that he's probably feeling a bit claustrophobic. He definitely seems uneasy. From his perspective, if these people wanted to turn on him and take everything he owns, they could very well do it, and he would have no chance to survive this. Absolutely. It's an incredibly precarious situation, 
that loners find themselves in when they come across a settlement like this. And when we talked about laws of hospitality when Cass was here, Mm -hmm. I think if you didn't have those things in place, it would be very difficult to have trade in a world like this. We know that there is a drifter's code. So meeting people out on the open water, you treat each other in a certain way. We don't really have an indication, at least so far, that there is such a code for coming into a settlement. Mm -hmm. I expect there probably is. It just is never really brought up. If these people are civilized enough to have a flag system, they had better have a hospitality rule. Yeah. Like, come on. Isn't that what the flag would be for? Like, hey, I'm a traitor. You should extend me the hospitality that you extend to traitors, Mm -hmm. which means safe passage, fair treatment, fair trading. Yeah. Which we'll get into it in the coming minutes. They do not keep. No, certainly not. No. We get a quick peek at a couple of atollers. They are working away at a big old fish carcass thing. It's our first indication that the wildlife of Waterworld has grown to a size that some would consider unnatural. Yeah, I'm looking at that clip now, and it's not immediately obvious what this animal is. It's almost like a mutated hammerhead shark. That's kind of what I thought. So it's got these like ear things sticking out the side that look like they should continue on. Right, because in a normal hammerhead shark... They do extend out. They're quite wide. Yeah. And this one they've squashed down and they're a bit thicker from forward to back. Yeah. I like the idea of people going out and hunting these large beasts and then bringing it back to be harvested for every little bit. There's a pile of bones off to one side. They're already taking care of the meat. They're going to use the oils and blubber and... Bones are going to use everything about this fish. Every part of the buffalo. Use the skin to make clothing. By the way, does the skin look a little furry to you? It definitely looks textured. I wouldn't necessarily say furry, but I can see where you'd get that. Yeah, textured. So it's a fantastical creature for sure. I was looking at this thing and I got a thought in my head that I would love if it's the actual lore behind this thing. I would like to think that the atolls have some sort of crane fishing system where they can put big old hooks down through the bottom of the lagoon and those hooks float however far down you need to. And then when a big creature comes along and chomps down on the hook, they have a crane system that can pull these creatures up out of the water. I like that idea. There's no reason that fishermen should have to go out to fish. They have this atoll, they have this lagoon that has access to all the water. Yeah. We see later on in this movie that these atolls are not sitting on a piece of land. They are completely open to the ocean underneath. Yep. So that's a perfect setup. Yeah. Plus, it would look so crazy for them to have this giant crane pull up a creature of this size in just the middle of the atoll, and then people are coming out in kayaks and poking at it with harpoons and stuff like that to kill it. Yeah. (laughs) And this gives us big insights into how this atoll survives. Mm -hmm. This is how they eat. This is how they have fuel for burning lights. This is how they make tools with the bones. This is how they clothe themselves. Mm -hmm. The next shot we get is of a different side of the atoll. 
And this is described in the book as the Organo Barge. So we're just going to keep calling it that because it's a crazy name. And there is a huge tree compared to the tree that we've seen so far in this movie <laughs> and the tomato plant that we're going to get later on. The size of this thing is massive. Like, it's remarkable that they were able to grow something this big. It really is fantastic. And it does seem very low. And I do not have a green thumb. So actually making this stuff work, I have no idea how they do it. Mm. But I do know about, like, pruning. And the taller something is, the more energy it takes to get the nutrients up to the top leaves. So by keeping it low and trimming it low, I think they are conserving energy. Mm. Not that they necessarily need to conserve energy because the tree gets its energy from photosynthesis. That's not in short supply. But also by keeping it low, it's growing out a decent radius. It's creating shade. Mm -hmm. But the uh, trunk is pretty gnarly looking. It is very gnarly looking. And the words that we hear drifting across the lagoon to the mariner is spoken by a sort of atoll elder. There's several elders that live in this place. And the one that's speaking is identified in the book and in the cast credits as the Priam. And he is saying, bones to berries, veins to vine, these tendons to trees, this blood to brine. Too old she was, this woman does leave us recycled and enshrined in the presence of him who leads us. And I just want to point out, in the shot where they're cutting her hair and panning around the person, I might be seeing something, but that actress who is playing dead, I think she sneaks in a little breath and you see her move a little bit, but I might also be seeing things. Oh, I saw it. I think she does. Can you blame her, though? No, 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 no. About to be dropped into that stuff? <laughs> I kind of assumed it wasn't a real person. I was watching them dump her in, and the way she flops about seems very real. Mm -hmm. But just imagining making somebody do that. <laughs> it's just awful, and I don't know what the goo was in production. It could have been something completely normal. It was probably mud. It was probably just mud with food coloring and whatnot in it to make it the horrid shade of green than it is. But even so... That's a tall order to ask somebody to do. Yeah. So I kind of assumed that it was not a real body. But I don't know. I saw the breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I pulled a selection from the novel, and this is how it describes the mariner sailing into the atoll in the book. Before long, the trimaran slipped alongside a sprawling organo barge. Such barges were a bad-smelling fixture in any atoll. An organo barge was part compost heap, part fruit garden, and part cemetery. Under a massive mournful tree, grieving citizens and a few church elders were attending the funeral service of an elderly woman. Too old for life she was, an elder said. This woman does now leave us. The old woman's body began to sink into the compost heap. The mourners used garden hose to begin tending rows of fruits and vegetables around her. The mariner guided his craft toward a dock. These atollers were a suspicious lot, the mariner knew, living day to day, clinging to survival, they needed something to believe in. The imagery from the book is much less gross than what they put in the movie. <laughs> I don't know. The idea of that being an active compost heap, the whole thing is going to smell bad to begin with. 
Oh, yeah. Because every piece of solid waste that is produced is going to go into that bog, mm-hmm. which has its own connotation there. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of them having some sort of gardens that's fed by this thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's still a poop bog. It is. I did some digging about recycling bodies. That was great fun. I can't wait to see what Facebook advertisements pop up. Oh, I know. So the most interesting thing that I found, the thing that I will pass along, is this company in Washington State, in the Seattle area, I believe. Its website is recompose.life, and they are a composting center for bodies. They are opening this fall, and you can start to prepay services starting in August. So what they do is they take a body and they put it into like a pod, a coffin sized pod that is filled with dirt and straw and some other stuff that promotes decomposition. And then it's sealed up and it's temperature controlled and stirred around like workers open it up and stir things around to promote bacterial life and the super duper bacterial environment turns a body to soil in 30 days. Wow, that's really quick. Yeah, it's really fast. I find this incredibly interesting. That's way better than shoving a body in a barrel and then leaving it in the middle of the woods. Yeah, right? So there's all sorts of questions people ask about, what about bones and teeth? The temperatures get high enough that bones and teeth are composted too. Really? It is serious business. It gets up between like 150 and 170 degrees Fahrenheit. Because of all the chemical reactions. Yeah, because sure. of all the chemical reactions that are going on. There's also questions about disease. Temperatures get high enough that most pathogens are killed. They won't take Ebola patients because Ebola does not die in those circumstances. So this company will compost your loved one for you and then give you a small vessel of soil, and then the rest of the soil goes to a local reserve to be used in the park and grow trees and plants and whatnot. Okay. So they're doing exactly what the Atoll people are doing. They're just doing it in a more socially acceptable way to our society. That's a good way to look at it. This company is containing the dead bodies. As opposed to just releasing them into a pool. (laughs) Yes. I am so fascinated by this organo barge thing because you can't have just a solid column of dirt and stuff that goes down indefinitely. And if you pour this stuff into the water, then at some point it's going to escape somehow. I don't know. The way it looks on the screen is that they've got it built up above water level. Like, there are a few feet contained inside, so I have to think there is a bottom to this. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a solid barge, and they built up the side so that they can have this pool of stuff. I almost feel like it would also be a good idea to have, like, a mesh bottom to it, so that way you're not adding weight to a float. I You're just kind of containing a slick. No, because then all this good stuff is going to leach out into the water. I guess. You have to completely separate this pool from the ocean. And yeah, it's heavy. 
I mean, they've got a whole tree up there, so it can't be light. Yeah. But I'm very fascinated by it. Like, this is a tank. It's definitely deep enough that this body goes into the pit and completely disappears. I get the feel that it's feet deep. Yeah. Three or four. That there is some serious volume going on here. The thing that makes me want to believe that it's deeper than that is that later on in this movie, they're going to drop this cage that the Mariner is inside into the thing to recycle him. So it's got to be at least deep enough that they can lower that cage completely into the muck yeah. and then pull it out again when he's completely recycled, I guess. I do not know what the plan was there. It was an odd plan, and thankfully we don't get to see it fully realized. I am not okay with those scenes, and I'm not looking forward to talking about them. <laughs> I am not okay with those scenes. Yeah, because it's disgusting. It really is. It's beyond disgusting. Everything about this whole recycling bodies thing is extremely squeamy. Yes, it is. The only thing about it that I like is the tree. Like mm -hmm. They are using what is available to them to farm. That's the only thing I'm okay with. <laughs> I can't help but feel that dumping bodies into this organo pit is not the best use of the body. Oh, I disagree. Like, okay, what would you think is a better use of the body? Okay, so yes, they are cutting all the hair off. That makes sense. They're going to use that hair to make line. But it reminds me of a post that I saw either on Reddit or Facebook or Twitter, but it was pitching a situation where you're caught on a snowy peak your plane has gone down and your only companion has died do you eat your companion and one of the people that responded to it is like no this is how i would use this part of this person this is how i would use that part of this person and basically it ends up where using the different parts of the dead companion they've pretty much trained a wolf pack to be their companions and they've built up a shelter and all this stuff and it's like you're not necessarily turning a person into a tent like you're using parts of that person to interact with nature in such a way that it benefits you okay but those are life and death emergency situations this is a society mm -hmm. that has religion yeah this pream says a sort of prayer over this body there is a ceremony going on so they are disposing of their dead in a way that is societally respectful for them. That guy didn't. Yeah. <laughs> he did what he had to do to survive. So I can definitely see wisdom in the water world stuff. I'm interested in this idea that they worship someone that they refer to in that last line of that poem thing. The idea that the woman leaves them recycled and enshrined in the presence of him who leads us. Yeah. Do you that, think they're talking about a person or something more ethereal? Or a deity. Um, I kind of assumed that they were talking about a person. I assumed he was talking about himself. That he is the leader that is here to witness the burial of this person. It's entirely possible, though, that they do worship a deity. That's entirely possible. I don't think it's ever really brought up again. It isn't. And the main thing that brings it up is the fact that when you read in the book, it talks about how... These are church elders and the Atollers being a suspicious lot that they need something to believe in. It goes on to say that the Mariner doesn't believe in anything but himself. The thing about 
church and religion is that it's all centered around worshiping something. You can worship anything. Mm -hmm. They can worship the ability to grow food. And this prayer that he says over the body kind of indicates that that may be where they're going. Bones to berries, veins to vine. That they all work, even in death, they all work in service towards growing things. And that is an important part of society. Having something to believe in, having a reason to gather, have something to work towards together. It's a hugely important part of society. So, And it kind of reminds me of Dune. Because when someone dies in that story, and I'm going to have a bit of a disclaimer here saying that I'm talking about the David Lynch movie more so than the book or anything like that. But there is a person who dies in that movie and they are put into a machine and all of their moisture is extracted. And it's sort of the antithesis to what we see here. The solid parts of that woman are being put into the pit to feed the vegetable gardens. The solid parts of her have just as much goodness in them than the liquid parts. Yeah. Like, all of her is useful. Exactly. To the plants. So, on a dry world, they get the liquid parts. In the wet world, they get the dry parts. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird. It really is. Let's leave the organo barge behind and move on to the next part. Because the mariner finds his place on the dock and he ties off his boat and... As always seems to be the case, there is a group of urchin kids just hanging out on the dock. It looks like they're cooking something. They gotta walk. You used the term urchin. My understanding, an urchin is a child that lives on the street, like homeless. Dwells on the street all the time. Do you think these kids are parentless? Familyless? If I had to put money on it, I would say that these kids definitely have parents. Or at least they had parents at one point. Well, yeah. They could be orphans left over after a catastrophe. Maybe their parents went out to trade or to fish and then something bad happened to them. The element of this that makes me want to call them urchins is the fact that they're just hanging out there. I say just hanging out there. They appear to be cooking. It's not like they're being layabouts. But there always seem to be, when you have a docking situation, kids milling about. These kids terrify me. (laughs) Okay, you took that in a direction I did not expect. I am afraid of groups of children because they can overpower you. You think they're kids, but there's many of them. (laughs) They collectively are stronger than me. (laughs) They're also meaner than me and have no societal qualms about being mean to me, whereas I have qualms about being mean to them. Oh, see, that's your problem. You think you have to be nice to them. Well, the Mariner certainly does not think he has to be nice to them. He kicks off this interaction by being mean to them. Is he being mean to them or is he teasing them like you do? Maybe I see it as being mean to them because I fear that that's what they would do to me. The Mariner, as he's reflecting the sunlight into the faces of these boys, he's got this playful grin on his face that tells me that this is play and not maliciousness. No, see, I still think he's just being an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely don't see it like that because he's come up to the dock. He's tied off the boats. He sees these small handed people. (laughs) That's the thing about kids. They got small hands. They can slip into tight spaces. And he's teasing them with this mirror because he's going to interact with them later on and employ them to watch over his stuff. Yeah, his plan is genius. 
He is beginning an interaction where he has the power because he's doing it to them. They don't know what it is. They've never seen anything like this before. So then he takes this interaction, rolls it into another interaction where he now has protection for his stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a genius move. That arrangement where you go into a place, you tie up your boat, and then you tell a kid, hey, watch my stuff and I'll give you something if it's all here when I get back. That is something that happens in the book Mortal Engines by mm -hmm. Philip Reeve. When an airship flies up to the airship colony and they dock on the flying situation they've got there, the airship captain sees a little kid hanging out on the docks and flicks him a coin and says, keep a watch of my stuff. Make sure it's all here when I come back. It's a thing that just happens in post-apocalypses. Yeah, it really does feel like a thing. I dare say a trope. And I imagine that an intact mirror is something that is fairly rare in a post-apocalypse like this. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see, but I don't recall any other mirrors. They might have them on the Exxon Valdez, but the Exxon Valdez never sank in this world. I guess not. Like it's still out there floating, so it's not like anything in there would necessarily be completely lost. But the Mariner can dive down and he can grab more rearview mirrors whenever he wants. And if they're so valuable that he's able to employ the services of these three kids, he tells them, if all of my stuff is here when I get back, you each get one. And those kids could probably turn around and use those as bartering tickets to get who knows what. Yeah, this is great because for the Mariner, it's a cheap item. Exactly. They're everywhere down there under the water relatively easy to reach into a car and just yank it off. They're really not that hard to pull out. I don't know how they don't fall down all the time. <laughs> so he probably has a stash of them. I imagine he probably has stashes of small, simple items like this that he can use for some light bribing like this, using for light trade, trading with drifters so that he doesn't have to show off too much of what he has, like keeping things close to the chest. So if he has to do a largely symbolic trade with a drifter, he's got this mirror. Mm -hmm. He's got, I don't know, a lighter would also be an easy thing to find and be a small thing that you could stash and just trade away. So these mirrors, I think are a great item. I agree. I also noticed that when the light is dancing across the faces of these children, you hear a little sound effect, and I'm pretty sure it's the same tinkling sound effect that you get in movies like Hook and any Peter Pan stuff whenever you see Tinkerbell flittering around. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels to that flitting, dancing, light type idea. It's quick. It's unstable. Yeah. It's appropriate. But all of this messing around with the boys is interrupted by the arrival of the Enforcer. And as far as cool factor is concerned, I think the Enforcer is pretty good. He just walks around as a tough guy and he doesn't talk a whole lot. And when he does talk, it's very matter of fact or very official sounding. So I feel like he's got a good cool factor. I agree. I think he presents as very badass. Plus... He does that thing where he talks to the Mariner without actually looking at the Mariner. Yeah, definitely a power play. Oh, absolutely. So he begins the interaction by asking, you know me. And the Mariner says, I know what you are. And the phrase, you know me, strikes me as odd. 
But I think the idea is well conveyed by how the Mariner responds with recognizing his office, his job here on the Atoll. Because I'm sure each Atoll has its own enforcer. It does seem like a fairly standard position. And a great, it's, oh, it's such a great introduction between the Enforcer and the Mariner. I think the Enforcer is able to recognize that the Mariner is a bit of a tough guy. And so he uses that tough guy to tough guy interaction to let him know, yeah, you're tough, but I'm tough too. So yeah, how does he put it? If you look for trouble here, you'll find more than you can handle. And then he gives the Mariner two hours. And the Mariner's like, I only need one. <laughs> that did feel like the Mariner trying to out-tough the tough guy. Yeah. Who's trying to out-tough the tough guy. It's like a battle back and forth between the two of them. And I do feel like they come out at the end of this interaction fairly equal. Mm -hmm. Neither of them have been embarrassed by the other. In this situation, the Mariner gets the last word by saying, I'll only need one. In the book, the Enforcer has one more line that he tacks on to this interaction. He says, less is your choice, more is an infraction. Understood. And then the Mariner nods. And I'm really glad they left that out of the movie. I feel like it didn't need saying. No, it didn't need saying. And I think if they continued to go back and forth, it would have started to feel like they were just both trying to get the last word in. I'm trying to get the last word. No, I'm trying to get the last word. Fine, fine, whatever, whatever. I don't need... Uh, yeah. And then it just turns petty. It's no longer tough. Yeah. The beautiful thing about this interaction is how simple it is. It's very succinct and to the point. Yes. It works. So the Mariner leaps off of his boat onto the dock. And I've never walked around in ski boots before, but I've also seen people walking around in ski boots. And it doesn't strike me as the most comfortable thing. No, it's awkward, right? Because aren't ski boots slightly tilted forward? They're also completely flat on the bottom. Yeah, and the ankles are completely solid. Yeah, there's no left to right movement with a ski boot. I think you've got forward and back movement, but for the most part, the ski boots are there to make sure that you don't roll your ankle while you're skiing. Mm -hmm. If the ski is going to get wrenched out at an angle, it's going to take your entire leg with it. Yes. It's not going to break your ankle. It's probably going to hurt your knee or your hip. Right. And so... The Mariner is going from bare feet on his netting and hull surfaces to ski boots on, what is this, like a mesh metal dock thing? Yeah. He seems so unsure of himself. Like, like he's still on a floating surface, but now he's got these big clunky boots on, and I love the little stomp he gives after he settles himself to be like, okay, I'm good. I can walk. Yeah. <laughs> It definitely takes him a moment, though. Mm -hmm. I like how when he's negotiating with the boys, he holds out the mirror so that they can all see what it is. And you've got that one enterprising kid who reaches out and tries to grab it. And that's when he's like, ah, no, 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 no. You get it when I get back. They do seem slightly afraid of him. Like the younger one actually gets up off his seat and moves around to the back so that there is something between him and the Mariner. They seem very unsure of what this interaction is going to be. These are probably not the kind of kids that would gang up on you like you're afraid they would. Probably because they have a natural caution around strangers. Yeah, I suppose. Like if you were an atoll regular, they'd probably feel comfortable enough to jump you. But I think you'd be fine if you were in the Mariner's shoes. Okay, I want to clarify. I don't actually think kids are going to attack me. I think they're going to make fun of me. <laughs> and that's worse. 
vicious mockery. Yes, because children are horrible. Yeah, horrible people. They are pretty bad, <laughs> just as a rule. Do you remember <laughs> that scene in the Netflix series Glow where Allison Bree's character I can't remember her name Ruth. Her name is Ruth. She is like super duper poor and she goes out for dinner. So she's got like the styrofoam container with her dinner in it. And this group of two or three kids who are on skateboards, I think, like attack her and like rough her up a little bit. Mostly what happens is they throw her food on the ground and she's like, she yells out, she's like, that was all I had. I have nothing else. I have no more money for food. (laughs) I don't remember that, oh, but I trust goodness. you. It's really early on, like before she gets the job at Glow. All right, well, let's leave the kids behind because the last Please. several seconds of this chunk of minutes is the banker. He is reaching into a pan filled with the dirt that the Mariner has shown up with, and he takes a pinch of it, and he puts it in his mouth to taste it. And I'm not one to put dirt in my mouth, but I also remember how dirt was described in the in last week's minute. That it has a distinct aroma that is intoxicating. So it makes sense that he would put it in his mouth. Oh, the look on his face. He is so delighted. (laughs) I love it. And yeah, hearing the description in the book of how they talk about dirt, I think does lend itself to this look of delight on his face. That this really is something special. Because yeah, they get the nutrients and whatnot that they need to grow things from bodies and human waste. But it never smells good. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as having earth in your hands. Real dirt. Yeah, it's not the same thing. Yeah. So we'll talk about dirt more next time because there is plenty of dirt talk with the mariner and the banker getting into the nitty gritty of bartering and haggling over the price of this dirt. We're also, next time around, going to get introduced to a few more faces that are really integral to the plot going forward. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 7. See you next time.